Welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. My name is Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. My guest this week is Stephen Coslin, and uh, you know, I mentioned at the end of my Tom Griffiths episode that a big focus of what I wanted to do at the beginning of this new year, 2022, and before I finished my PhD, was to really cover cognitive scientists. And that was sort of how I viewed the kind of culmination of my cognitive revolution project was to, you know, I've always identified as a cognitive scientist, whether or not that actually is the best label for what I do, especially in my research, uh, is debatable. But like internally, I've always felt like that is the perspective that I'm speaking from, that I, that is most sort of like my kind of default, most internalized perspective. And yeah, so this installment, this episode is a big, you know, uh, feature in that. Stephen Coslin is a cognitive science par excellence. And and, uh, it was super cool to be able to talk to him about his experiences, how his research developed and uh, everything he's done. I remember thinking, I remember, I remember, you know, back in my intro to cognitive science classes, Psych 85 at UCLA, taught by Jesse Risman, you know, you hear about um, Stephen Coslin and, you know, these mental imagery debates uh, with Zen and Pilition and everything. And how is this core, you know, sort of foundational question in, in cognitive science? So it was, it was super cool to be able to talk to, to Stephen um, to sort of, we draw a little bit uh, out, of course, about his mental imagery research, but we really touch on a wide range of things. We actually talk a lot about um, novelists and to what degree would we know that um, a, a novel is an accurate representation of the human behavior? In particular, I sort of broached the question with, you know, from a computational cognitive scientist's point of view, you always hear this sort of idea that, well, if you really understand how something works, in this case, the mind, then you ought to be able to create it. And we usually point at computational models and say, oh, that's the creation of, of the mind. But actually, I think that in just a legitimate, just a, like a, just a legitimate way, that novels and fiction, when done well, are also a way of creating human behavior and a much more complex, though potentially um, not quite as empirically testable version of human behavior. Anyway, so we talk at that at length about that kind of that kind of notion and everything like that. But um, I'll read a little bit of of Stephen Cawson's biography on his Wikipedia page. Otherwise, I'd never be able to keep all of it straight. Um, but uh, he's the president of Active Learning Sciences, which helps institutions design active learning uh, based courses and ed- educational programs. I know that's been a big focus of him, especially during the pandemic as everything moves to online education. So he's also the founder uh, and chief academic officer of Boundary College, an online two-year college designed to help working adults uh, develop skills and knowledge that will not be automated in the foreseeable future. Big, important uh, topic. And then uh, prior to that, he was also the founding dean and chief academic officer at Minerva Schools at the Keck Graduate Institute. And then before that, believe it or not, he was an academic. Uh, that was uh, the John uh, Lindsley Professor of Psychology in memory of William James and Dean of Social Science at the place called Harvard University. So uh, he also, yeah, like I said, big figure in the history of cognitive science. That was fun to talk about. He's also um, um, PhD advisor for Steven Pinker. Um, if, uh, I've had Steven Pinker on the show before. Uh, Steven Coslin definitely comes up in that. And you can check out that episode in my back catalog. But uh, yeah, no, this this has definitely been an episode that is crucial for me in sort of getting, feeling like I've covered the range of cognitive scientists that have influenced me to various degrees and, and everything like that. Um, if you've listened to a handful of the recent episodes I've been talking about, sort of my vision for changing the podcast going forward, and I definitely think that um, you know, I don't want to say this is the last sort of cognitive revolution style interview that I'll do, but this is a part of, I mean, it, it I, 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 we'll just have to see, we'll have to see what happens there, but this is definitely a, uh, I feel like, you know, getting towards the, uh, I've done what I want to do in terms of documenting the personal experiences that have driven the cognitive scientists that I look up to most. 
So if you want to follow along with my work, the other things that I do and how this podcast is going to develop going forward, the best way to do that is to subscribe to my Substack newsletter at codycommerce.substack.com. Um, it's a huge help for the show and, and for me personally to continue to do this. And like I said, you know, I'm coming up at the end of my PhD here. If you follow the show, you know that this is my, my final year and I'll be graduating uh, sort of in this summer. And so, yeah, big changes coming, coming for me and I hope to develop a lot of what I'm doing on this platform and others. So that's codycommerce.substack.com. Thank you for listening. And without any further ado, here is Stephen Costley. The first thing that I usually like to, to ask people about is, is what was the intellectual culture of your, of your family growing up? How would you describe that aspect of things in your family and, and just in, in, in the world that you came up in? Uh, there wasn't one. Uh, neither of my parents went to college. Uh, they didn't have any interest in reading. Um, they, did, they did watch the news, though. There was some discussion of politics and stuff like that. But no, my background is very unusual for someone who became an academic. What did, what did they do? What did your parents, what was their trade? Mother was a homemaker, as they say now. And my father was a business guy. He was mostly in real estate, but he eventually actually became president of a hospital after he retired, uh, which is pretty impressive for somebody who never went to college. Um, it's very smart. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then did you have brothers and sisters as well? Two younger brothers. Uh, one of them did finish college. The other one never did. Uh, yeah. They did uh, things very different than what I do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what do you make of that? Are there things that like, what, what do you feel like you got from your, your parents that sort of drew out over your, over your career? Well, when I was in high school, uh, the Vietnam War was at its peak. And my father and I did not see eye to eye on that. It was a pretty uh, intense disagreement. So I actually left home and worked my way through college. Um, had two jobs. Uh, and that had a huge impact on me. One was running Rats in a Maze, which was my first publication. And the other was working for Project Head Start. Uh, in the inner city of LA, actually, um, trying to figure out ways to, to do educational intervention. So both, both those had very, the jobs had giant impacts on me. Um, but not having a safety net, I took no money from them or anything. Um, I knew it was kind of up to me to kind of make my way, which had a massive impact on me going forward. And uh, where, where was it that you're from originally? Where, I'm, I'm sorry. Where were you from? Last word. Where were you from? Where am originally? I from? Yeah. Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. so you went to undergrad at UCLA, presumably because it was the local yeah. kind of public school. Correct. It was the only school I was allowed to apply to. Yeah. Okay. That was, yeah. So tell me about that. What was, like you said, you, you worked through it. Was that... And like you said, it wasn't expected to go to... You weren't expected to go to college in your family. So was that... An eye-opening experience? Was it still a, what, what was it like for you? Well, it was during the, the whole Vietnam War hippie thing. So it was a time of a lot of freedom, a lot of, um, I, the, the college experience was, a, it was a part what I was doing, but mostly what I was doing was kind of trying to, you know, grow up. Um, and, I did get involved because of the jobs I had. I got involved in research and got interested in that in the psychology department, which obviously had a huge impact on me going forward. Um, but yeah, so I actually got to know some of the faculty reasonably well. There was a guy named John Seward, uh, who that first publication with the rats was, was with, who uh, was just such a dedicated scientist and so truly believed in the ability to understand learning in particular that it really influenced me the rest of my life in fact 
can you can you say a little bit more about what that what that influence looked like? Um, so he he advised my uh, senior thesis, which was uh, with rats in the day, and um, basically in retrospect. Uh, listened to a lot of nonsense from me and sort of tolerated it. I mean, I would just babble to him about all these kind of random ideas and he would gently, very gently kind of nudge me into something more rational. Um, and it was, it was exactly the right approach because I really did listen to him and absorbed it. So this is, you know, something that I want to bring up sort of at the beginning of our conversation which I, I think will be a running theme throughout a lot of what you've done and everything. But I want to ask you now at this point, sort of reflecting back on your initial experience as an undergraduate, what, how do you think about the point of an education? Or what do you think is, is how, how, do you, how do you start to conceptualize what education should look like, both in, in terms of the experiences that you've had, for example, in this period in your time, and as they've uh, developed in the other projects that you've taken on? Can you start to say a little bit about that? Yeah, I don't think there's one point. I think there are multiple different points, and I, and I think it depends what you mean by education. But I think if we talk about higher education, um, there's the liberal arts education where the point seems to be to make you a well-rounded individual who will be a responsible citizen. And then there are other approaches where it's more job-oriented. Um, these are not uh, either or, there's more like a continuum of different mixes. So some comprehensive colleges have things like nursing programs, which are clearly uh, occupationally oriented. Uh, I think that the general point of an education is to increase uh, your toolbox and your perspectives and worldviews, which in turn lead to greater opportunities. Okay, um, so uh, going back to this point, then what's um what drew you to psychology initially? Was there, uh, I guess, it seems like a fairly impractical thing, right? Like, uh, so, so was that were those the terms that you were thinking about it at the time? Yeah. Um, I really was formed by the 60s. So I had this idea that there were a lot of um, problems in the world, and the only way they could really be addressed was through education. I, this was a high school thing for me. I was really very convinced of that, and I remain convinced of that throughout my entire career, entire life. And it became clear that not enough was known about psychology in the sense of learning memory and motivation and all those other kinds of things to really do much with it, at least when I started. I mean, back in those days, the behaviorist approach was kind of pretty much still dominant uh, back in the uh, middle 60s. Um, and it just was clear that wasn't going to help people learn the kinds of things that would broaden their perspectives and increase their sense of opportunity. Um, so I, I was really was committed to trying to understand more about sort of the kinds of mental functions that one should think about in the context of education. And that was early on. And so like you said, there were sort of two twin experiences. One was working in the research lab on your rat project, whatever that, what the specifics of that were. And the other one was working for Head Start, which is a little bit more on the ground, tangible, um, uh, you know, application in, in, in educational systems. So how did that start to play out for you? Did you feel that, uh, how, how did you start to, you know, wor work on those in, in parallel and develop that as you, as you were finishing your time at UCLA? So they really didn't connect, actually. The rat stuff um, was at the level of analysis was kind of descriptive uh, regularities between certain environmental events and behaviors. And in fact, a lot of psychology uh, is at that level today. You see a thing, things, you know, Ebbinghaus's law, power law, 
There's a lot of sort of descriptive regularities, especially like in developmental psychology, but even in, in social psychology as well. That's really distinct from looking at mechanisms, what goes on in the head, and what produces those responses. You know, why is it that you perceive something the way you do, which requires organizing and interpreting a certain way, interpreting as a mental event, and that in turn relies on your previous experience in terms of how you're likely to respond, as well as your sense of what the situation is and the alternatives are and so forth, all of which really rely on understanding mechanism. So those, those two approaches still exist in psychology, and they, they rarely come together. They, they do sometimes, but not as, as much as you might think. And so what, uh, what influenced your decision to, to go to graduate school then? Oh, I had been a dual major, uh, psychology and philosophy initially. I was absolutely fascinated by Wittgenstein in particular. I've read everything that I could get my hands on. And um, eventually became convinced that he was right, that uh, philosophy, sort of analytic processing processes alone weren't, weren't going to solve any really deep problems. I mean, you have rational reconstruction, trying to make sense of what goes on, and you have conceptual clarification, which is very useful. Um, but neither by themselves or in combination was going to solve anything. So it, it became clear you had to do empirical work. You had to actually study what's going on if you really wanted to understand the, the answers to the sorts of questions that he, many of those questions, not all of them, that he raised and that I was interested in. And so, uh, like you said, when you were getting into to things, you know, cognitive science had, had you know, started to, to come on the scene, but behaviorism still would have been the dominant kind of paradigm. Do you remember when you first heard, you know, the term cognitive science and what that meant to you at the time and, and everything? Yeah, it was actually cognitive psychology, which predated cognitive science. And in fact, Neiser's book, uh, Ulrich Neiser, I think it was 1967, uh, wrote a book called Cognitive Psychology, which really named the field and really laid out this idea of thinking about the mind by analogy to a computer program. Uh, that's the first, first time I'd come across that idea. And I, I read that book twice and underlined it. And it, it made a massive impact on me. It really was exactly what I was looking for. Um, sort of a way to think about uh, the mind, mental processing, and, and uh, ways you could intervene. I mean, it laid out a kind of conceptual vocabulary. So that 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 was I didn't that was like my first week of grad school, which oh, was really? nineteen seventy. Yeah, that's when I came across it. And so, did you know that, that was what you were going to sort of throw your lot in with? Were you like, oh, I'm going to get on board this train, or just sort of totally? Yeah, yeah, without question. Yeah, that was nineteen seventy. Yeah. So the book had been out a few years, but I'd never heard of it. Uh, but when I when I got to grad school in Stanford, I um, immediately encountered it read it first time through very quickly and then a second time very slowly. And I uh, was just really impressed, really impressed. It, and it, it was also the case that I was taking a computer science course at the same time, programming, punch cards, by the way, uh, line printers, I mean, way different world. And one of our <clears throat> assignments was to uh, do some graphic stuff, which had a huge influence on how I started thinking about mental imagery, by the way, by analogy to the class assignment and introductory course on Pascal or whatever it was. No, Algol, it's Algol 60, back in the day. So once you read that nicer book, was there a problem that jumped out to you to start working on? Like, okay, this is what I'm going to, this is where I'm going to dive in at. It wasn't through the Nizer book. It was uh, there was a paper by Alan Collins, and I think his name was Ross Quillian. Never met him. Collins, I knew, on semantic memory, which was um, long-term memory, which hadn't hadn't really been studied much. People didn't really have a grip on how to think about it. And what Collins and Quillian did, they had a computer model. Uh, which was based on the idea of uh, cognitive economy, 
of trying to have the most efficient way of storing information, which I think reflects something about the computers of the time, by the way, limited memory. So they, they have this idea that memory, long-term semantic memory, memory for meanings of words and events, things you don't have time tagged, um, is hierarchically organized. So for example, you've put all of the properties of animals up with an animal node that it eats, moves, reproduces, whatnot. And then under that, you might have birds and they fly and have hollow bones and feathers. And then under that, you might have canary, which sings, and penguin, which waddles, and so forth. So their idea was, if I ask you to verify a statement, like a canary can eat, that should take longer than if I ask you whether a canary can sing, because you have to move further through the network. And in fact, it worked. It worked out really well. So I, look, I came across that, and I immediately thought there's a huge confound here. That is just the strength of association between canary and sing and canary and eat, way different. Uh, so I designed an experiment where I pitted the strength of association and I collected norms on this um, from the Stanford undergraduates um, who I was gonna test so it was appropriate the norms from them. So I, I pitted the strength of association against distance in the network, and guess what? It turned out that strength of association was way more important. But more interesting than that, when I was doing these experiments, um, I would notice when people made errors, the subjects, I would test them myself. And two in a row happened to answer no to the question, a flea can bite. And I asked them, you know, why not? Afterwards, I debriefed them. I was curious about that. I live with cats, so I was very familiar with fleas and their biting propensities. And um, one of them said, I looked to see something like, I looked to see if there was a mouth and I couldn't see one. And the other one said something like, I couldn't see how the mouth could stretch big enough to get around skin. So both of them had these sort of visual imagery. Uh, vocabulary, which I hadn't been thinking about at all. So I started thinking about it. And I called everybody up who had been a subject. And I asked them, did you tend to um, visualize the animals? They were all animals. <clears throat> when you're answering. And about, I think roughly half, maybe it was 40% said they did. And then I looked at the data. And I had this idea, well, if they're using imagery, the most important thing should be how large the property is on the animal. So a mouse has a back, should be easier to see than a mouse has whiskers. And it worked beautifully. The day were just, I was just stunned that if you looked at size versus what I called salience, strength of association, the people who didn't report using imagery were faster with the more associated, whereas people who did were faster with the larger. So then, of course, the obvious thing is I then simply instructed people, uh, use imagery, don't use imagery. Um, actually, I don't think I said don't use imagery. I think I just left it at that. Then I did them afterwards, although I don't remember anymore because it's like 1970 we're talking about. Um, although I've written the papers up, so it's in them somewhere. Um, so that worked. It worked out really well. So then it happened that I was taking a course in developmental psychology because I was still interested in education and discovered Piaget, who had this idea that children between whatever it is, five and seven, use a lot of mental imagery in their thinking. And Jerome Bruner had this similar idea. And a guy named Sheldon White had this five to seven shift idea. And it was, it was like, whoa, if they're using imagery, then maybe understanding how imagery works could have some implications for education. So that, that's really what triggered my interest in all this early on. An accidental discovery, uh, thinking about in the context of education. And then the third piece was the computer programming, where I got a metaphor. It was like I thought, huh, maybe images are like displays on a cathode ray tube. This really dates it screen. 
And they're generated from more abstract things like descriptions, the way my program worked. So all of a sudden, I had all this stuff I could use. Like, well, if it's on a screen, the screen may have a limited size. Why don't I measure it? So I figured out ways to measure the visual angle of the mind's eye, and they compared that to similar things in perception. And if they're generating it, maybe they're doing it at a part at a time. Well, that's true, and the more parts I organize something into, the longer it ought to take them to push a button saying they form the image in preparation for a question. They didn't even know that I was, that was what I was mostly interested in, was how long it took them to push that button. Um, and th things like that. So I came up with lots of different ways of measuring these things. Like, I like convergent operations. Um, and it all kind of came together kind of nicely. And then, of course, as I went along, I started actually doing actual modeling, not just a metaphor. Started, which led to more hypotheses and more studies. And that kept me going for decades, this cycle of uh, modeling, hypothesis testing, doing empirical work, so forth. So before we follow that train of your work on mental imagery, I want to ask you about the basic computer metaphor for mind. Like you said, mm -hmm. you first encountered it in 1970, and you know that was 52 years ago. How has your thinking on that as a sort of a framework for understanding cognition changed? What obviously the computer, what, what computers can do, and what they look like has changed, as as you've already noted. What, yeah, what, how does that metaphor resonate for you now, and how, how does that look different than than it would have been back in the, you know? Class? So, so the the first book that really influenced me was that Neiser book. The second was David Marr's book called Vision, a computational approach or something. And uh, I was just blown away by him. He was at MIT. I was at Harvard at the time. And I actually did a postdoc in his lab, but he was dying at the time. So it didn't work out as well as it could have. But I did go to lab meetings and talked to a lot of people there. Um, it, it had a massive influence in terms of how I thought about things. That is, you can think about computation at different levels of analysis from the level of thinking about what is actually computed to how it's computed to how that's implemented. That was his big thing. And then somewhere around the same time, the connectionist uh, neural net stuff came in, Jeff Hinton, Terry Sanofsky, people like that. Um, and I realized that a von Neumann architecture, the kind of computer we're all familiar with, where you have a central processing unit and memory where you can put in either data or programs, which is data for the CPU in a way, um, wasn't the only way to, to look at it the way that Neiser had as, you know, flow charts. That there was a, another way of thinking about that middle level, the um, algorithm, as he called it, um, in terms of a different kind of computation. But you can still think about modularity. But then I read a paper by Herbert Simon, which I don't remember the name of it. It's, it's about weak modularity. He had this central metaphor of um, this big warehouse and it's divided into rooms and each of those has cubby holes and each, each of the little cubbies has its own thermostat. So you can turn it up or lower as much as is personally comfortable for you. At the end of the day, they turn off all the power. And what happens is there's, um, relaxation, that is the temperatures start to even out between adjacent cubbyholes and adjacent rooms. So the, the idea is that it's modular, but they are interacting, they're bleeding into each other. So he had, he had this idea of weak modularity, which I thought was right, that things are not airtight. It's not, it's not the way it might be in a computer where each process just does, takes some input, does its own thing, spits out an output, goes on its merry way. There are feedback loops. Uh, there's anticipation, there's priming of various sorts. It's just a much more complicated interaction, interactive kind of system than I initially thought of it when I read Neiser's book. Do you, do you think that there are limits to using computation and the sort of compu computation to understand cognition? Well, I mean, the, so when I talk about there are various kinds of interactions and priming and all that, uh, an obvious factor is emotion. 
So how does that figure into all this? So emotion doesn't feel like it's entirely just information processing. There's probably an aspect of it that is, but there's this big modulatory thing that's happening at the level of the implementation if we use Mars three levels, which then percolates up. So the Mars thing as well, by the way, it was, it was too simple. Those levels interact with each other in every, every one of them. And, um, an emotion probably cuts across all of them. So to answer your question, I, I still think that thinking about computation is, is a very useful way to look at things. And there's really nothing better at the moment that I've come across for having some kind of conceptual clarity. But you just need to have some subtlety to it and realize it's taking place at multiple levels of scale. And it's not necessarily exactly the sort of thing we're seeing in contemporary computers but it still has this characteristic of accepting some input, doing something to it and producing an output and to be modulated in various ways. And the input can be from feedback loops and so forth and so on. And this can be ensembles that in turn have population properties, ensembles of neurons and so forth. So, so it's, it's nowhere near as cut and dried and simple as I had originally thought back in 1970, but nevertheless, I still think thinking about it computationally is a very useful way yeah. to approach. And I don't know an alternative. Do you, by the way? No. Um, the, I, I definitely, uh, what got me into cognitive science was the computational approach, particularly as, as it's practiced in the, the MIT tradition with nowadays Josh Tenenbaum and his Bayesian models of cognition and that sort of thing. And so that definitely drew me into cognitive science and like, oh, if you want to really be clear on how you think the mind works, this is the appropriate way to do it because, go ahead. So notice that the Bayesian approach, much of that is at the descriptive level where you have equations or formulae and so forth. And the mechanism is kind of left a little open, like a lot open. And it's a good example of what I was saying before, that you, you have, we have these two strands in psychology that don't interact as much as they really should. I mean, the, the third big influence in terms of a book, by the way, was uh, Danny Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which does tend to integrate across the two. That's, that's one of the reasons it grabbed me. That, that is, his idea of system one and system two uh, is mechanism. And yet he's mapping onto that all this biases and heuristic stuff, which is on this other level of sort of descriptive regularity. Well, so far be it for me to be a Bayesian apologist, but uh, I will take up the mantle since there's no one else, no one else to do it, in that I do think that a lot of progress has been made over the past, whatever you want to say, five to seven years on developing what we think of as algorithmic exp explanations or algorithmic, you know, sort of level descriptions of what previously were only computational level descriptions in the initial terms. And so, for example, the algorithmic sampling techniques, um, such as uh, 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 Markov Chain Monte Carlo, uh, a lot of these Bayesian people, myself not included because I'm not a Bayesian, you know, uh, computationalist, but they've done a lot to make really in my opinion, compelling explanations of, of, of what they do. And yeah, they started off with just this pure description. Here's the computational thing, and people rightly pointed out and said, well, that doesn't explain all the things. But they have a track record of being able to incrementally creep towards explaining more and more uh, through these algorithmic uh, explanations. And you, know, you can start to see how the algorithmic uh, explanations are connecting up with with what we think of as, you know, what we know, understand about neural computation, et cetera. So that's the last part is the, is the key for me in that Mar used to talk about a distinction between two, two kinds of color theories of color vision. There was the Hervich, um, forgotten, there's another name associated with it, blocking, um, which was just a, a set of equations. Um, whereas other approaches tried to map it into what we know about how the brain processes color. Uh, so the, the idea was that there were constraints on the theory of the algorithm, which came from below, from what we know about the actual mechanism. So my question about the Bayesian stuff is, most of that, as I understand it, and I'm no expert on this, by the way, 
is at the level of the theory of what's computed. And there is some on the algorithm level, but to what extent is it actually being constrained or being uh, thought about in terms of being mapped into uh, what we know about neural computation per se? I don't know. I am not sufficiently up to date on the Bayesian perspective of visual cognition, which was never my area of, of special interests to begin with, as I'm more of, um, you know, always been kind of more on the social, social side of things in, uh, in my involvement in that. Um, but what I will say is that the, so having brought that up is like, a, oh, that at the very least, you know, was an intriguing entry for me into the field. And specifically from that point of view, which I think brings in a lot of people to the computational way of seeing things, of, well, if you really understand how the mind works, then you ought to be able to build one for yourself, for the relevant capacities that you're making substantive claims about how the mind does them in some, yep. in some fashion or other. And, you know, I definitely uh, have bought, I bought into that, have bought into that, and to some degree, I still think that there's, there's, there's a lot to that. But I guess the thing that, I, I found myself drifting away from computational work more and more. And maybe it's just, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to have a great career as an academic psychologist, and that's totally fine. But the thing that I, I find limiting about the computer metaphor is that it does really well with coming up with tangible, implementable, specific explanations of specific behavior. And the thing that I find more and more interesting about human behavior is the complicatedness of it. So for example, when you take this Feynman-esque statement, if you really understand something, you should be able to build it yourself. The computationalists usually point that and be like, ha ha, that's what we're doing. Uh, this, is, this is the way. But I think another totally legitimate way of um, uh, interpreting that statement is that's actually what novelists are doing, right? They're the ones who are creating a facsimile of human behavior in all of its, you know, sort of splendid complicatedness. And yes, it's not computational. It's not able to generate like its own stuff, but it is in a way creating something. And so I'm very fascinated right now in that direction of like, well, okay, I feel like I've, I've, I've studied the computational thing and that's taken me in this one direction of, of creating simpler explanations, concise, pithy explanations of human behavior. And I just find myself drifting in the opposite direction now. That's, that's kind of how the computer metaphor has played out for me over my short you know, uh, time thinking about it. So let me ask you a question. So let's say that uh, a novel is a, is a construction that's based on understanding of uh, psychology writ large and all of its complicated glory. Um, how do you know whether the author got it right? And a follow-up question, how do you know what the author actually did to create that? What's the takeaway? I, well, so I think, I guess I don't find myself uh, asking the question, did the author get it right often enough uh, for me to really, <laughs> really, uh, you know, uh, I don't ask that question maybe as much as uh, s someone pursuing science should in a way. And I guess what I find, um, I guess, I'll, let me try and answer uh, the question in a different way than, than, than the way you framed it, which is that what I'm getting out of that sort of stuff personally, having studied, you know, the sort of tradition in psychology building out of classic cognitive science, up through you know Danny Kahneman's work, current stuff, and 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 whatever, um, is that uh, when it comes to understanding the relationships in my my own life and that sort of stuff, I can say like, okay, well, you know, uh, here is your classic Danny Kahneman Kahneman Tversky bias that explains why I think that I'm always doing the dishes and my partner isn't okay, great, maybe that helps me understand my relationship in a certain way. But um, watching, there's something instructive about watching relationships play out in, you know, a, uh, 
a, a good novelist rendering of of, of that is that I, I'm not sure that psychology is well equipped to, to 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 tell us about those sort of things, and so I don't know how to evaluate novels from a scientific perspective, which is a little bit uh, what I feel like that question is is like well how do you how do you use this uh, in some way that's verifiable in the scientific method? Can't say that I've uh, I've solved that one, but it's a it's a direction that I find myself interested in at the moment. So. I was dean of social sciences, and one of the departments I was responsible for was the history department, which I couldn't figure out. Why is history a social science? So I talked to a bunch of historians, and I naively started off by thinking that what history was about was the old Satyana thing about to those who don't understand the past, they're condemned to repeat it, that kind of thing. None of them believed that, by the way. None of them believed, none of the ones I talked to, that they were abstracting out general principles that could be used to predict anything. Um, they were very clear on that. So I, I got progressively more confused. And then I eventually came to an understanding of, I think, what they were really trying to do, which I, which I then took back to them. And no one would sign on, but no one disagreed. And what I said I thought they were trying to do was understand the brackets of how environmental events can affect human nature. That is, they, they were very big on, they weren't really interested in the mechanisms of history. This was the Harvard department at the time. Um, that one of them said to me that the 19th century could be an island off the shore right now, that they didn't care. That's how they were gonna view it, study it, which I was shocked by at the time. But the more I thought about it, I realized what they were really doing was looking at how environmental events and situations could push around what it means to be human. And they were really doing a kind of psychology that was not done in psychology departments. Um, and I thought that was pretty interesting. And if it's done well, where they're documenting what the events actually were and how people actually did behave, it, it's again at that descriptive level which is extremely useful. You've got to have it. You can't have a theory of what people are doing without knowing what they're doing. Um, so I, I thought that was a plausible project and really could, in the end, be extremely useful, although it was in terms of psychology of it very early in the, in the process. But they're, they're mapping it out. So I think that that's a valuable process, um, but it's a different one than what you're describing. Is what, what they're doing, I think, is looking at the boundaries. That is, we've, we've come, you know, courtesy the manufacturer with certain capacities and abilities and so forth, but that doesn't determine, our genes don't determine what we're going to be like as human beings. It, it's a complicated interaction between them and the environment. And to what extent is, is it bracketed? So that could map into what you were just talking about with novels. I hadn't thought of it that way, but it could. So then did you get any purchase on the question, you know, kind of a version of it that you were posing? Like, did you, uh, was there a satisfactory way that, that they could tell whether they had successfully gotten at something that was, that was true about that? Did you, did you feel like you, you got an answer? Yeah, they, they have methods. I mean, history, is, history can be, anyway, uh, quite rigorous. I mean, they, they have archives that they look into. There are various tools that they use. It depends on what kind of history we're talking about. Different different aspects of it. Some of them actually use physical artifacts and analyze them quite in sophisticated ways. You know, like the nature of a plow. You can by analyzing the structure of the metal, you can get some sense of how much land could have been plowed by, and that in turn can tell you something about how many people could be fed and so forth. It's really pretty sophisticated and interesting. Um, so you know, history has methods, and I, I guess the. Literature idea is the, the, what's what's bothered me a little bit is the the one method seems to be doesn't ring true. You read a novel, doesn't ring true, and I I don't know that there's consistency in that across people. I have no idea. I mean, I guess book reviewers say something about that, but and will that change over time? Whether it seems to ring true or not, I mean, if they're really tapping into something fundamental about human nature, it shouldn't presumably. I mean, I suspect there's a field that could exist. Maybe it already does. I don't know. 
that looks at things like this that would approach psychology from a, a different perspective, which is, I think, interesting. In, in some ways, I view the whole novel thing as kind of an apotheosis of the study of individual differences. So, mm. like, you know, this has been something that, you, that you've been interested in, and I think mostly in the context of, of mental in, imagery. But, you know, like, psychology at its sort of baseline is saying, okay, I'm going to tell you about the average of these 20 people that I look like. And yes, we get more sophisticated and obviously there's, there's variations, but that is, that is the, the core project of psychology. It's like I talked, I, I, I gave the thing to 50 people and this is on average what we can say about how, how they approached this you know, task that I mm-hmm. gave them. And so in a way, psychology isn't necessarily the study of, you know, the person per se it's the study of, of people and sort of like a this this kind of abstracted way and when you uh, and yes yes i'm not saying that ev- like there's no there's nothing further than that but when you i think when you really ask like well what is the like thing that takes this you know one individual another individual very concrete and and tries to be most serious about like well how does that play out the people who are are, are most interested in that problem to me it, it, it kind of seems like novelists you know so I think about what psychology is doing. It's kind of a nomothetic ed- enterprise where we're trying to figure out what the dimensions are that, that are common across people. And the underlying assumption is that we'll vary in quantitative ways along the dimensions. That is, we'll be more or less, each individual will be better or worse spatial skills or something. I don't know, whatever the dimensions turn out to be. And that you can think of this super high dimensional space where each person is a point in it. Uh, that is, you can map them by how much or whatever each individual dimension they have. Um, I think that is kind of the project of the understanding is that, that there is no average person, but we're figuring out ways in which we can look at each individual and characterize them. And you, you see that in psychometrics, of course. The one thing that makes me take pause is I'm not so sure the dimensions are independent. And to the extent that they interact, it just gets way, way more complicated. But I think as a simplifying initial first step, asking the question, what do, what do people have in common? And then we know that individuals vary in quantitative ways along that dimension. And we can characterize and get an individual in terms of the their position on, on, on all these different dimensions. I think that's a reasonable place to start. And I think that's the strategy in which cognitive science has experienced success, is that mm-hmm. I think, and, and, and by all means, it's an, an important uh, and certainly seems like the scientific method favors studying that, that sort of thing, at least how we practice it in cognitive science. But when you contrast that with the ideographic uh, sort of way of, of understanding people. And this this goes back to one of my favorite psychologists, Gordon Alpert. This was his, how he conceptualized everything that he was doing was as the interplay of uh, the nomothetic. How do we make substantive generalizations about, about human beings across a, a sample or a population? And ideographic, how do we explain individual yeah. life histories and circumstances and that sort of stuff? And cognitive science has experienced, I would say, it's a lot of success on the nomothetic front. I think we have not nearly progressed as much on the ideographic front um, because it is a much harder scientific pr- uh, problem. It's unclear what it, how to even pose it in scientific terms, uh, which which is in line with what I'm saying about the novelists taking it very seriously. They're obviously not trying to do science. They're just trying to do whatever it is they they do, and we can't really you know falsify it. In any, in, in any way we're used to thinking about it. But that is the way that lends itself to truly getting into ideographic, um, you know, sort of uh, exploration of, of, of what humans are, are up to. Yeah, but again, the question becomes, questions become, I should have said, um, what were the underlying intuitions that the novelist had that led to that particular tale? way that people were described as interacting, say. Um, And was it right? I mean, does it ring true? And if it rings true to the reader, 
Because, I mean, it is true. I mean, it's filtered through our experiences and biases and all that other sort of stuff. So it may be that our responses, even if they're, they, they feel really right, really insightful, are in fact misleading. Um, very hard to know, for me anyway. Uh, hard to know is probably a you know, good three-word summary of, of, of the position that I've been articulating over the last 20 minutes. Uh, um, <laughs> hard to argue with that. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, uh, I guess that that's been a kind of meditation on the, the enterprise of, of of cognitive science, that sort of stuff. But how how has your relationship to ac- academia and academic institutions changed over the course of your career? Because you've done so many different things, from you know obviously a, a very successful career at Harvard to uh, now your more startup oriented educational pursuits. How has all of that played out for you? What do you mean by played out? Feel free to take up um, take up take up any 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 strand that, that you want on that. But I'm just curious, like how I guess why at a later stage of your career, why did you feel that the necessary next step was to follow the sort of startup route in in um, you know right. as the next step? Here's what I want to do with education. So so one. So going, this ties in with what we're just talking about. How do you know if you're on the right track? How do you know if, if your theories are in some sense correct? Well, one approach is a so-called pudding proof, where you try to apply it. You see if there's a technology that comes out of it. So if, if you can develop, develop a technology out of a theory, that's a very strong evidence that there's something to the theory. So again, I was in interested in education. I never lost interest in education. And it became clear um, at my, my last phase at Harvard that um, the innovations I was, I was thinking about and also was seeing, so Eric Mazur at Harvard developed something called peer instruction, which was a very powerful way of using active learning. And it just wasn't getting traction. And I organized a little group of the, the dean of the college and various other people at the end of the ed school uh, to try to talk about ways to use these discoveries in cognitive psychology, cognitive science, and, and coming out of physics, weirdly enough, physics departments, where they were applying this stuff in ways that psychologists weren't. Fascinating. People like Carl Wyman were using the literature on expertise to teach in a way that no psychologists were thinking of it that way, and so forth. And it just became clear that um, it's not going to move. I mean, the, the faculty didn't perceive a problem that needed to be solved. They thought things were going fine in terms of teaching. And, and maybe they were in terms of their own goals. But I, I got more interested in how we can really push this forward. So I, I left Harvard to go back to Stanford to run the, the, the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences with the idea that I would make it into a, a center for solving societal problems, an applied kind of engine. Well, it turned out that nobody else was really interested in that. The, the center had been around since 1954. So as a place where people went, academics went for a year to write a book. And it was super successful. A lot of really good books came out of there. Um, but it just wasn't what I wanted to do. So when I met this guy, Ben Nelson, who had just gotten $25 million from Benchmark Capital to start a novel kind of university, I met him. He had no academic background. I didn't know how to do it. It's amazing he got this money. He's amazing at raising money, truly amazing. So I started first starting as a consultant, helping him develop a strategic plan, and then uh, quit Stanford and, and joined uh, to become the founding dean and chief academic officer of Minerva, which is the name that he had finally had for um, the university. And I viewed it as an opportunity to, to actually apply uh, a lot of what I learned, particularly in, in the form of active learning, um, and get feedback and be able to start tuning up theories. So there's a book that he and I, Ben Nelson and I edited, called Building the Intentional University. It came out in 2017 at MIT Press. Um, 
where we we summarized where we were. It was about four years in then. Yeah, it's an edited book. There are lots of the chapters um, from different people involved in building it. Uh, and, uh, and it was clear that we were actually doing stuff that we that I, I could never have done is just having a lab in a standard academic environment. So I wrote a chapter in there called The Science of Learning. I had 16 principles that I had pulled out of the literature, which I later realized was it was really a first draft. I mean, some of the principles overlap, some were special cases of others. So I published a book at the end of 2020, uh, where I, I boiled them down to five, five principles. It was called Active Learning Online. And those principles are really powerful. I've been using them. So the company I have now called Active Learning Sciences basically uses the science of learning to build programs for medical schools, for various universities, institutions of various sorts. And it, it's working really well. I mean, we do pre and post tests for the courses to really see if they learn what they're supposed to learn and so forth. It's really working well. I mean, the science of learning is mature enough now to really be able to produce technologies that are effective. Now, I, I don't see how I could have possibly done any of this if I just stayed as a standard professor. Right. And the, the problem with being even almost especially at a prestigious place like Harvard or Stanford is you have institutional inertia. This is the way it's always been done. Therefore, this is the way we're going to do it. So are there if you could put your finger on it, what are the big few things that you would like to see changed in our approach to to higher education that Minerva and your subsequent projects are, are building out that are, are harder to do at present day universities? So I think about them in terms of three buckets which interact, um, which are the, the, um, the content that's taught, the pedagogy or andragogy, whatever you want to say, uh, um, the teaching methods, and then technology, more technology in it, and the three interact in, in interesting ways. Um, so in terms of content, um, all Western universities organized the curricula, organized into three big components, so general education, the major, and electives. General education is supposed to provide a broad foundation for the rest of your life. It almost never does. Typically, it's just you know, a set of columns, um, one for natural science, one for arts and humanities, one for social science, and you choose two courses from each or something like that. And there's no structure whatsoever, no thought about how the courses interact. So, it's, so general education is kind of a fail in most places. Minerva, we really designed it intentionally, taking uh, a step back and asking what this is all for. Um, the major is typically traditional. It's based on the way departments are organized, which is research oriented. Uh, and electives often turn out to be what the faculty members interested in teaching, what they're currently thinking about, not what students particularly interested in. So that's about content. So what I would do there, I would have um, electives be the heart of it and have three kinds of electives. Uh, the first are short courses, maybe even two weeks, that allow somebody to dip their toe in and get a sense of what a field is like, see if they're any good at it. So there's got to be substance to it. Any, any good at it, whether you like it, whether you can see yourself doing it, uh, I'd have a huge range of those. And then I would have call them electives that are level one introductory, where it's serious now, where you can assemble them interdisciplinarity. Because I think the future is not going to be siloed in the traditional course uh, departmental structure. And uh, the Gallatin School at NYU does this. They allow students to put together interdisciplinary majors. And Harvard did that too. We had a committee, which I was on for special concentrations where you could put things together in different ways. Um, make that the norm, uh, you need good advising for that. And then you have electives that are actually drilling deep in these different areas that students are interested in. And I would integrate general education throughout. So when I think about general education, what's really important are things like critical thinking and problem solving and communication, all this stuff can be integrated into those kind of courses in a way where it's obvious why they're relevant, why you, why you need them. Um, 
So it's a different view of what breadth is. It's a different view of sort of what the content ought to be for the 21st century. Um, there, there are drawbacks. It's not a liberal arts approach in a, in a traditional way. I mean, I have this view that uh, education shouldn't stop with college. It should go on for the rest of your life. And there should be institutional structures to support that. And people should always be exploring and looking at what's around them and what's developing new around them and staying up. Um, and there are, there are mechanisms you can put in place to do that. So that's about content. Uh, the pedagogy, uh, I am just incredibly impressed with the power of active learning. Uh, can, you, people, can you define so, active learning really quickly? Yeah. So uh, some people call it learning by doing. I don't. I think of it as learning by using. So for me, you get some content. You're very likely to forget it 90% of it in a few months, unless you actually use it in some way. Uh, you can synthesize it, you can apply it, you can, you can use it and, you know, think about active learning uh, exercises or things like role playing, problem solving, uh, even debate, um, creating a product. You use the information in some way. That's what's going to make it stick. That's going to allow you to actually generalize it so you can apply it in your life. Um, so I spent a, a lot of time, that little book I wrote is, is about this, um, the last book I wrote, I'm writing another one right now, which is much more detailed. Um, and uh, the third piece is technology. That is, I've been thinking a lot about what hybrid uh, education will look like, and I have a different way of viewing this than most people. I think of a two by two table where you've got modes, synchronous and asynchronous, it's the columns. So synchronous happening at the same time. Uh, faculty and students are all at the same time. Asynchronous, they're not. They're doing things at different times. Those are columns. And then the, the rows are, is it in person uh, or is it virtual? So you've got four cells. And it turns out that there are 11 different combinations. There are six different pairs and so forth. So you can go through each of the four cells and look at its strengths what it's really good for. And then if you take a step back and you ask what the goals are of a course, say, or a program, what the constraints are, things you have to work around, it might be that people don't have broadband, they only have the phone, they don't have computers, they, um, the money, there are various kinds of constraints, and they have resources, things you can take advantage of. It might be a post office. You can mail people papers rather than have them read them on their phones. So if you look at those four cells, those different modalities, you can put together um, hybrid courses that use technology in ways that really help people learn. So there's, I'm, I'm editing a book right now on exactly this. And I've written a paper, a chapter on exactly what I'm talking about. So I've been thinking a lot about it. So those three things, the content that's taught, the way it's taught, and the way the technology can be used in a service of helping students learn material. Um, that's kind of how I'm thinking about going forward. Very cool. Well, I look forward to uh, reading the book that you're editing right now and uh, you know, getting into more, some, more of some of the stuff. It's obviously a, a huge, huge thing right now. But uh, we're coming up at the end of the hour here, so I'll end with this last question. Uh, what are three books that have most influenced your thinking? So I already mentioned them. One was Niger's book, Cognitive Psychology, got me thinking about the mind by analogy to computer program. Yep. Another was Mars' book, Vision, yep. which really led me to think about competition in a much more sophisticated way than I had been earlier. And the last is uh, Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which is an interesting way of starting to think about how the two different main strands in psychology, sort of descriptive level and mechanism level, can be integrated in a way that I think can really make progress understanding how the mind works. Love it. Well, uh, Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. It was, it was a huge pleasure. Cody, it was a pleasure for me. You asked really great questions and got me thinking about some things in ways I hadn't before. Thank you. I really wish you well. That was my conversation with Stephen Coslin. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, um, maybe check out the Stephen Pinker one. That, like I said, the outset, um, Steve was... Stephen's graduate student. And um, 
but uh, that being said, definitely uh, there's a lot of great people in the history of cognitive science who have been on the show. And Stephen uh, Coslin, I uh, very much appreciate his time. And it was, it was great to be able to add him to that list. I actually really enjoyed this conversation. I felt that we were able to cover the kind of range that I like to have in a, in a conversation where we can take digressions and not have to feel like, oh, we just have to, oh, you know, like, the core cognitive science stuff for Stephen Coslin is going to be these questions about mental imagery and, uh, and, and, you know, like that, that sort of thing. We got to cover a little bit of that, but then a lot of unexpected stuff. And that to me is the fun part when you get into the unexpected stuff and just can develop ideas that are tangentially related to the, the core consideration. Um, but go further beyond that. So I liked it a lot. Um, I, uh, I had a really good time talking to, to Stephen here. And uh, like I kind of alluded to at the beginning, this is, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be doing this style of interview for. And, and you know, like the, I think there's going to be some changes in the podcast that will be coming up soon. And they, they might be significant ones. So if you want to stay abreast of all that, then definitely subscribe to my Substack newsletter. You can find that at codycommerce.substack.com. And uh, yeah, shout out to Emily Chen, my producer and editor on uh, most of the episodes that I've done so far this year, including this one. And it's been great to have her on the show. So um, yeah, I'm excited to see what happens with the show going forward. And it's going to be fun to sort of take it you know, and the next step, whatever that, whatever that looks like. So uh, thank you for listening. And I'll be back here next week with another episode of something. It may be cognitive revolution. It may be uh, different, but uh, we'll, we'll see what that looks like. And uh, yeah, I'm excited about it.